Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story. There's a sense of immediacy about being there and what I was feeling in a raw emotional state at the time. Initially, I wanted to throw him over the cliff. I, I would have told you that you needed psychiatric treatment more than I did. Um, <laughs> um, we're, we're telling you what we were going through and we're, you know, we wanted to show people the, what it's like to be wounded, what it's like to go to war. He had a very bad episode. After my suicide attempt was when I really saw... You don't ever get over these things. You know, I had been pushing them away. You get through them and you learn how to manage them. All right, so this episode of Vet Story brought to us by Caitlin Kenny, our fearless producer. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Now, I was here when the guys were cutting this interview with you, and I was just looking at the book while I was outside the studio, and this looks like one hell of a book. Tell me who we got for this interview. It's uh, Thomas Brennan, who is a retired Marine Corps sergeant, Okay, and he's actually also the founder of The War Horse, which is an online news site, and also photojournalist Finbar O'Reilly, who has been covering conflict across the world for several years. Nice. Now, um, the war horse I'm familiar with. I mean, I think we've all seen that in the veteran space. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a pretty popular website. So how did they come together to write this book? So this book starts out with Brennan, who's just a regular Marine in right. Afghanistan with his unit. And he comes to where his unit's going to be posted in outpost. Right. And there's a journalist there and he finds out that they're, he's going to be embedded with his unit. And uh, Brennan's not too happy about that. <laughs> so it goes from being really suspicious of one another on each side and then um, forging their friendship through through combat under fire, right. um, through injury. And then they actually were able to have that friendship grow even after they both left Afghanistan. Very cool. And you have my interest peaked anyway, just because I'm a former Navy photojournalist myself. And uh, the title of this book, Shooting Ghosts, a U.S. Marine, a combat photographer, and their journey back from war. Here's what it sounded like when you sat down with the authors. I have to admit, your your book was kind of tough to read because I had to take a lot of breaks because it talks about trauma and how trauma affected both of your lives. Um, and it was very intense at times to kind of read how vivid and intimate it was to both of you. What was your process for writing the memoir about such an intimate part of your life? Well, I think in both of our cases, these were things that we'd been thinking about for a while. Um, These were experiences that we were ourselves trying to process. And we talked about them with each other. But for, for me, certainly, and from what I understand from my conversations with TJ as well, is that one of the ways that we can really move through these experiences and, and, and kind of grapple with them and make sense of them is through writing because you really have to play it through in your mind um, 
in order to make sense of it, to put it on the page. And doing that for me and for both of us, I think, was a very kind of cathartic experience and it allowed us to put those experiences in the past rather than kind of living with them continuously. And by sort of putting them on the page, you were almost um, getting rid of them in a way. Not entirely, but, but it was a way of putting them outside and analyzing them um, in an emotional way, but also with a bit of remove and a bit of distance. Writing the book for me was kind of like exposure therapy along the way because I had hundreds of letters that I'd exchanged between my wife and I over the course of uh, my deployment. I had to talk with a bunch of my Marines, um, family members, and, and, and others that I'd served with throughout my career um, in order to really make the book as detailed as possible. And one of the bits of advice that Finbar gave to me when I first started writing was write it first, then get it right. And my vomit drafts for the book where I would just spew everything onto the page and then I would take notes from the letters and I would take notes from the, you know, the Marines that I spoke with and then had so much source material and so much reporting and so much firsthand knowledge that, that eventually, it, you know, you had to whittle it down, whittle it down and being able to refine my own thoughts and, and think about them hypercritically. Uh, it actually made writing about very traumatic things uh, quite cathartic. How long did it take? Was it over process a couple of years or months? Yeah, I mean, we'd been working with the idea of a book for a couple of years before we pitched it to uh, publishing houses. And then once we did have the book deal, it was another two years that we've just now spent working on the book. So really from inception to publication was four years. So yeah, a good amount of time to, to have that sort of necessary critical and emotional distance from the events. But a lot of those events we were also writing about at the time. So there's a chapter in the book that I write about when I was in Gaza. I was writing that when I was in Gaza. And so the idea is that there's a sense of immediacy about being there and what I was feeling in a raw emotional state at the time. But over the process of writing the book, I can also gain a bit of distance and provide uh, an analysis of, analysis of that emotional state that I was in at that time. So you've got that closeness and that distance within the same sort of chapters sometimes. Writing first person present tense that allows someone to come along on the journey with you. And I think that that was something that was very important to both of us throughout the entire writing process of this was that um, you, know, you always want to show not tell um, and if we were writing about all of this as though it were, we're in the past um, we're, we're telling you what we were going through and we're you know we wanted to show people the what it's like to be wounded what it's like to go to war um, and and come home both as a uh, both as a combatant and as a uh, you know someone documenting those wars as a journalist You write about how you each realized you needed uh, to address your mental health. And you also show that it wasn't just a one-time thing that you faced. It was really a journey um, with ups and downs and that probably continues even today. Could you talk about that? When I first started therapy with my psychiatrist and my social worker, uh, one of them, I can't remember which one, told me it was going to be like tearing the, sca tearing the scab uh, off of an old wound every time I came in there. And, th and that... That, that rang true. I, f 
I felt like it wasn't just a book where you're like, well, I went to my therapist, we had, you know, talks and then he gave me some medicine and we really talked it out. Now I feel all better. It was, you know, I did that. Everything was going great. Then something happened. Then I went back down, realized I needed help again, reached out again. And I just feel like it was more truthful to how someone who is dealing with, you know, depression or anxiety um, or traumatic brain injury, you know, how they deal with just life and how reaching out to help isn't just a one-time thing, that it's yeah. just, it's, it's a continuous journey. Yeah, the, the, the journey for me was really learning how to reframe my own experiences and, and focus on the silver lining instead of focusing on the absolutely terrible aspect of it. Um, and when you, when you begin, when you begin looking at the little wins each and every day, instead of looking at all the things that go wrong, because let's face it, everybody has bad days and, and things never, things rarely go according to plan. So if you're focusing on all the little failures, then, then you miss out on all the successes that you've made. And those successes are what's going to bring you from, or, or going to help carry you from that first appointment through to you actually incorporating the, the tools that they're teaching you in, in therapy into your daily life. I think in both of our cases, it took us quite some time to admit we needed help. And then once we each finally, on our own time, did seek out the mental health care that we needed, um, that initial meeting is a big relief because you have made that step, that initial step, which is often the hardest thing to do. And so that does feel like a pivotal and monumental moment um, for me and, and TJ in the book as well. But it feels like initial progress and then it is it is a constant process of feeling like there's some gains and then some losses you you, you feel like you're improving and then you may have a, a backslide or you may have a, a an episode where things feel worse again and and that really is something i think that most traumatized people um will experience over the course of their lives is that you you don't ever get over these things you get through them and you learn how to manage them and you see that at different stages of the book where uh, some things might be going well for a while, but then something happens and it's a big setback. And the book is, is about how we manage to deal with that, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, um, and, and why we dealt with them the way that we did, and also what we managed to learn from those experiences uh, along the way. So for TJ, for example, you know, he had a very bad episode after initially starting therapy that led to a suicide attempt. And that was him hitting rock bottom, uh, a very low episode, and he can talk more about that, but it was from there that he started to rebuild. How do you feel like your friends and family were key to, to your journey as well? Misery loves company. Um, I was so miserable when I first came home that I wanted to make everybody miserable around me, and I pushed my wife away, and I pushed my daughter away, I pushed my mom, my dad, everybody away. And then... It was after, after my suicide attempt was when I really saw that you know, I had been pushing them away and I had been hurting them because they were trying to hurt or they were trying to help me. And in turn, I was actually hurting them by pushing them away and, and not being willing to accept the help that they had asked me for. I mean, my family, they were always there for me. I just couldn't see it. And, and when I did see it, when I did see it, it was almost it, it was almost too late, and, and I'm glad it wasn't. When you're feeling traumatized, it's a very isolating experience. You feel very alone, and the the instinct is really to turn inward and away from people uh, at the very moment when you actually need to engage with them and accept their support. 
And what we discovered through the process of writing is that we were able to turn to one another. And so it is a book that started out with us trying to make sense of our experiences, but it evolved into really not only a book about war, but a book about friendship and the crucial role, the essential role that friendship and a social support network plays in overcoming trauma and the kinds of experiences that TJ had in Iraq and Afghanistan and the kind of things that I witnessed in my years of working as a photographer who was covering war and combat. He said it much more eloquently than I did. <laughs> <laughs> he also has a good segue into my next question, which was you also both describe how your friendship grew from um, you know, weariness of one another to bonding in combat. And then now it has grown to a friendship with mentorship and support. Were you surprised by how you guys kind of grew close together? If you had told me in 2010 <laughs> that I was going to be best friends with a journalist, oh, and, and that I would also be one myself, I, I would have told you that you needed psychiatric treatment more than I did. Um, <laughs> I, I never thought that... I Initially, I wanted to throw him over the cliff. Like when, when I first saw him, when I found out that he was a photojournalist being embedded with us, our, our squad had only been working together for what, three, four months, I think, at that time. Um, and... Like we weren't, we weren't ready to have anybody embedded with us. So the fact that we've become friends is, is really, I think, a testament to the bonds that are formed um, in combat and, 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 and under fire. So. We, were, we were both deeply kind of skeptical of one another at the beginning. I thought he was kind of this redneck who would quite happily sit on his porch taking pot shots at squirrels back home. Um, and he thought I was, you know kind of poser with cameras trying to get some cool war stories to tell my friends back home and it was only over time and me spending you know days out on patrol with them and coming under fire with his squad and having conversations during the downtime uh, in the evenings because our bunks were side by side and just getting to know each other and spending time and going back for a second embed with his squad uh toward the end of their deployment and um it really was time and conversations and, and, you know, in some way I was able to share in that bonding experience of his deployment the way that his other Marines did as well. And when you come home, uh, although I'm a civilian and not a member of the military, there was something that happened over there that I was able to share with him and that made him more comfortable with talking about things that had happened with me, even though I'm a, I'm a civilian. But we got past that initial skepticism and, and sort of suspicion of, of one of the other um, over time. And I think that, I think that the, the, you know, the book and our friendship are evidence that, that veterans and civilians can have meaningful friendships and they, they can connect on a deeper level and, and that the military and civilian divide can um, be, be bridged. And I think that part of why the book shows that is because we couldn't be more different. I mean, he's Canadian. I'm not, <laughs> um, and, and you know that 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 comes with its own uh, its own preconceived notions <laughs> mm -hmm. on my end. Um, it like we're extremely different, and yet combat forged our friendship. And I think that it it goes to show that when a civilian and a veteran form a friendship, and you know, they, they focus on normal conversation instead of the, the jarring conversation that too many veterans are used to and that, that, that I became accustomed to. 
you're able to talk about the the 99.9 percent of times that are happy in uniform or the positive things that you learn from your service or you know the incredible things that veterans are doing in academia and social impact and, and entrepreneurship so i hope that when people pick up the book and well when they read the book not just pick it up uh, that that they walk away feeling as though they can they can reframe the conversation between veterans and civilians and and know that there is a positive outcome that can come out at the end. So the title of your book is Shooting Ghosts. Can you explain where that title comes from? Well, we wanted something that was evocative and there was this dual experience of us at war where he's shooting his weapon and I'm shooting pictures. And um, the the enemy that he was fighting was this kind of invisible ghost-like enemy that would mix and blend with the civilian population and um and i in the in the course of the story i'm taking pictures of friends who are no longer alive uh colleagues journalists and so the title kind of made sense on these various levels and was meant to kind of evoke a shared experience and also you know this idea that the experience of war lives on after you come home from war who did you have in mind as an audience when you were writing the book? In the very beginning, I really don't think that I had any audience pegged. I mean, obviously, we, you know, we wanted it to be a book that transcends the veteran and civilian divide and that a vet and a civilian can both pick up and read and enjoy and, and you know, meaning, meaningful conversation can come from it. In the beginning, I really just wanted to understand my own experiences at war. Like, uh, you know, I had these hundreds of letters and all these other, th you know, source materials that I could go through um, and to be able to organize them into like somewhat clear and coherent thoughts um, on a page like really helped me be able to read my own story and understand my own story and then it became how can I make sure that my story is able to transcend that divide and, and get to both sides um, but it's always been you know since you know, beyond writing it for myself and for my wife and for my daughter and, and the Marines I served with, like once it got past that, it was always about, you know, the veterans and civilians because veterans having a conversation amongst themselves and civilians having a conversation amongst themselves and nobody ever interacting, that's not good. So. Yeah, I think initially it was, it was really something that we undertook for ourselves as a some sort of cathartic experience of, of putting these things down but in the back of our minds and ultimately what comes to the fore as we are working on the book over time is that certainly from my perspective as a journalist I want to make people aware of, of the challenges and emotional difficulties that can result from the kind of work that I do and also addressing the issue of trauma in the military post-traumatic stress traumatic brain injury um, so there are certainly these these two parts of, of uh, our audience, but beyond that, it really is something that with the way wars are being undertaken today, they have spilled over, con over, over borders into Europe, into the United States. We consume media um, around the clock on our mobile devices. We're all exposed to trauma on a, a kind of regular basis, and things like 9-11 or other terrorist attacks um, have a deep and profound impact on society. So. This is, this is something that really is for anybody who may have experienced trauma themselves or knows others who have experienced traumatic events. 
And it's, it's a look at not only how, what those events can mean to somebody, but how do you kind of try to manage that in the aftermath of it? And how do you, how do you kind of move through it and, and, and recover and, and return to the kind of uh, life that is meaningful again in, in ways that trauma can, can affect you if, if you if you don't learn how to deal with it? What do you think needs to be done more for, for our military? And, and especially, but also for photojournalists like yourself, journalists who, you know, they're out there, they're on the, you know, right there in front of events that are tragic and, and horrible and dealing with mental health and depression and anxiety. What do you think more needs to be done to help people like that? Well, the first thing that needs to happen is we need to break down the stigma attached to discussing the subject. And that is certainly one of the goals of the book is to, is to just put this stuff out there for discussion and to, to get a conversation going about these things. So other journalists who may be experiencing similar things aren't afraid to talk about them and aren't afraid to seek help. And to be fair, a lot of media companies are quite good now at um, addressing this issue and there have been improvements over time, but it is still often a very uh, macho environment, certainly in the, 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 the part of the media that covers war. You have to be tough, like in the military, you have to be resilient, you have to be able to keep going back and doing this thing often for many more years than a service member might do. A deployment, you know, some people will deploy four, five, six, even seven or eight times, but often less than a decade. Journalists might be doing this for two decades, constantly, not on a rotation. So we have to understand what it means to look after ourselves. How do we keep a balanced life and not go too far off the rails? And that really is a question of educating the journalists themselves, but also the managers at the media companies who uh, need to be aware of the risks, the emotional risks and challenges that their journalists are taking, just as they would be aware of the physical risks um, that those journalists would take. Anything that you think should be changed in the military in terms of dealing with mental health or especially TBI treatment? You talked a lot about that in your book too. Yeah, I mean, as far as, as, far as mental health goes, um, hmm. So I'm, I'm going to separate this. The, the first aspect, I'm going to talk about the Department of Defense and what the department, what I think that the Department of Defense could do. I believe personally that it is a blatant failure of the military. If you put someone in a body bag, or if you're a corpsman or a medic who who who, who treats a wounded soldier, sailor, whoever you should be mandated to go to mental health appointments. Whether it's two or three or it, the post-deployment health assessment as it stands right now is an absolute failure. And there was a RAND study that came out a few days ago saying that there's, you know, the, the mental health system in the military is, is not as good as it can be. And, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to say that I'm not against mental health providers or I grew up, with a mom who's in healthcare, I'm married to a nurse. Like I, I know that doctors and, and nurses and medical teams don't go to work each day wanting to cause patients harm. It goes against what they what, what they try to do. Um, but the fact that we're not mandating care for people that we can pretty much guarantee have been traumatized is 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 a blatant failure in my mind. On behalf of the the Department of Veterans Affairs. I believe that it's time for them to acknowledge that cannabis research needs to begin. Um, it doesn't mean they need to start prescribing it right now, um, 
but I think that they need to show a more deliberate effort to want to explore cannabis research and actually be willing to discuss that topic because it's something that a lot of veterans care about and a lot of veterans want. Is there anything else you want people to take away from your book? Well, you, you might think that a, a memoir um, like this is, is, is about war, but really it is about, yes, there's, there's a lot to do with that. Um, maybe a third of the book focuses on that. But it's as much about friendship and, and that the importance of family and the social support network to get people through difficult times. And, um, and this idea that we need to not be afraid to ask for help and to get the help that we need as soon as possible rather than waiting, rather than putting it off. And, um, and that no matter how bad things might seem at any given time, if you do take those steps to get help, and if you do talk with the people who you trust, um, as difficult as that may be, then you will be better off. And that is the most important thing, to know that you're not actually alone, no matter how alone you may feel. And, uh, if I had parting words for any, any person, for that matter, not even just a veteran who might be listening to this, it would be, it's okay to not be okay. And if you're asking yourself whether or not you should be going to talk to a mental health care provider or if you might need to go get evaluated for a traumatic brain injury, uh, if you're asking yourself that question, then then I, I think you know what the answer is and, and that there's no shame in, in going to get help. So please, go get help. Go get help. Go get help. All right. Awesome interview, Caitlin. Great work. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the book is Shooting Ghosts, a U.S. Marine, a combat photographer, and their journey back from war. Uh, you read the entire book for this interview, right? Yeah, it was a great read. Definitely yeah. recommend it. I saw it on your desk, and I just was like, wow, Shooting Ghosts. That looks pretty cool. Uh, the book dropped recently, you said? Yep. It's available for purchase right now. Perfect. All right. Well, we look forward to more good reporting and more great vet stories. Thank you very much, Caitlin. Thank you. This has been Vet Story, and to hear more great Vet Story podcasts, check us out at ConnectingVets.com or socially at ConnectingVets. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.